Welcome back to another episode of Roushing to Judgment. Uh, I'm continuing the very um, Middle East-focused thread from last time. So uh, if you haven't listened to it already, last episode, I believe that is episode um, 27 is my thoughts as a half Ashkenazi person on a Jewish state, just the idea of a Jewish state and why I'm opposed to that. This episode, uh, I want to talk about the main inciting event that made me so sympathetic to the you know, innocent people just trying to live their lives. Um, in Palestine, and because um, I'm not Palestinian, for those of you who don't know, I'm not. I'm Arab, but I'm Lebanese. Uh, you know, and of course, like you know, if you go back far enough in time, I'm sure there's plenty of overlap there. You know, Lebanon um, borders on Israel, and before Israel was created, obviously it. Uh, you know, the the people who were there, you know, who then became Lebanese and Lebanon was founded, um, were bordering on the Palestinians, right? So, yeah. Um, I mean, my parents are both very pro-Palestine. They always have been. Um, you know, that surprises people sometimes because my dad is Ashkenazi and statistically speaking, most Ashkenazi people across the world tend to be pro-Israel. Um, if not, just like straight up, you know, Zionists. Uh, they, they at the very least are like, tend to defend the Israeli government's actions, you know, make excuses for it, or, or a lot of them even are like single-issue voters and, you know, they just vote for whichever politician is more pro-Israel than the other. Um, so my dad is not like that at all. Um, I, I, you know, I should actually, uh, actually ask him sometime like when he developed that attitude I imagine it was very young because him and my mom have known each other since they were like 16 and they've only ever been with each other romantically um, so you know that's just like most of their lives right and I don't know before my dad was 16 I don't know how frequent of a topic Israel and uh, Palestine even was, especially because it was so long ago and it, you know, the Israelis had not conquered um, as much of the Palestinian land as they have now. You know, Israel was this relatively new project, I guess, when, when my dad was a kid. Um, so anyway, like, you know, I always felt more inclined to have that opinion uh, because it just seemed logical to me. I even remember asking my dad when I was a kid, like, hey, I've been learning about the Native Americans in school. Like, this sounds kind of similar to what's happening to the Palestinians. And he'd be like, yeah, it's exactly like that. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, the foundation was always there, but the big, big event that really um, solidified my 
you know, solidarity with, uh, you know, just the average people of Palestine um, was when my family and I, I think when I was 11, uh, it was before we lived in Lebanon, which is like a whole other story, but um, we visited a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. So we didn't go to Israel or Palestine. I've never been to either. Uh, I've always, I've wanted to. I Going to Palestine seems like it might not happen. I don't know how much of it is going to be left after this conflict that's going on right now. Um, if you're listening to this, not with the other episode in mind, I'm, I'm recording this on October 12, 2023. Uh, so yeah, I... You know, and and for those who don't know the historical context, um, as many Palestinians were displaced uh, after the creation of Israel began in 1948, um, many of them fled into Lebanon because it's nearby, right? Uh, you know, nat- it's, it's a natural place you'd want to go to because it's still Arab people, there's, you know, space to live in a lot of parts of it. It's it's not really other than Beirut and maybe one or two other small cities. It, it isn't densely populated, um, even though it's, it's a very small country. I mean, it's about the size of New Jersey. Uh, so, yeah, you know, Palestinians started forming refugee camps in Lebanon and um, the one I went to, I'm pretty sure it was called Nahar al-Barad. Um, my Arabic accent is just like shot to hell. But anyway, it, it, I, I'm pretty sure it translates to cold river because Nahar is river, Barad is cold, right? So Nahar al-Barad, pretty sure, pretty sure that translates to cold river. Um, and uh, we were going to that refugee camp specifically because my parents are friends with this guy, Jamal, who's uh, very successful, um, you know, immigrated to America, to San Diego, which is where they met him. Um, but his parents were still there. At the time, I don't know what has happened to them since. I mean, they're they're very old. I imagine they've probably passed away by now. Um, but at the time, they were definitely alive because we went to Nahar al Barad and we spent the night in their home uh, with them and Jamal. And I think Jamal's family was there too. His um, wife at the time and and his two sons uh who are around the same age as me and my little brother but but the same kind of gaps there um and ages so yeah we went in there and um you know i mean it's probably pretty close to the idea you have in mind of what a refugee camp is like uh really bare bones infrastructure, you know, just like wires hanging over every street, hanging very low, dangerously low sometimes, Um, you know, not really any kind of properly paved uh, 
roads in a lot of it and sewage going through the streets a lot of the time, cockroaches crawling around, um, you know, a lot of kind of markets um, out in the open, some of which maybe are not super sanitary. Um, And, you know, just like very basic... There, you know, it's not, I mean, some, something, maybe one misconception people have is that there are still like buildings, you know, it's not like it's a bunch of huts or something like that, or like, you know, just a bunch of little shacks made out of straw. Like there are actual buildings with, you know, concrete and drywall and all kinds of things like that. But, you know, they're very cheaply built and you know it's kind of, it's kind of like if you can imagine going to like a, a housing project in the US and then kind of taking that down another rung or two of infrastructure um so yeah we we went there and um we stayed with Jamal's parents and uh I mean, I felt safe most of the time because we were with Jamal. Like, I don't know, if I was just there on my own, I would have felt pretty overwhelmed. But, um, you know, we stayed there and uh, I remember asking my parents, like, isn't Jamal wealthy? Like, hasn't he done really well in the casino business or something like that? Like, why doesn't he just get them to stay in his mansion in San Diego County. Um, and my parents told me, yeah, you know, he's asked them, he's he's pleaded, he's begged them to come and live with him and enjoy a comfortable retirement and just get away from all this stuff. And they refuse every time. And I was just baffled by that. I was like, what? Like... You know, especially after I heard that they they had sacrificed so much to send him to the States. You know, they saw that he had a lot of talent from a young age, that he was very smart. They kind of pooled their resources and just so much sacrifice to, to send him over there so he could have a better life. And so, of course, he's like, hey, you know, you, you succeeded. I went over and I, I have a good life there and I made money and... Now let me take care of you and you can come and live with me in San Diego and it'll be wonderful. And they're just like, no, no, we're staying here. And so I asked like, what possible reasoning uh, reasoning could they have? That's just so bizarre. And the answer was, was so heartbreaking. Um, I mean, I still like almost tear up just thinking about it. And the answer was that they didn't want to leave their home again. And to understand that, you have to understand what happened when Israel was created, which is that basically all of these white Ashkenazi settlers, you know, often with, uh, you know, very devout, you know, Jewish religious practices with backing from the UK and then the US later 
they made an army and they went into Palestinian lands and they either just killed people and took their land or they went up to them with weapons and said, you can either leave your home and everything now and get out because this all belongs to us now. And if you leave without struggling, then maybe we'll let you live. Or you can struggle and we'll kill you. Or they, you know, would actually just go into the homes and just physically kick people out and just rip them out of their homes and just took everything from them. And Jamal's parents were one of those people who, the, one of the Palestinians who were there in 1948, who lost everything, who were just kicked out and had to just relocate and, and figure something else out. So they relocated to Nahar al-Barid in Lebanon, and that became their home. And, you know, to explain what they mean by that, like, the, the trauma, the trauma of being, of having to leave their home in that way was so horrible and so scarring for them they, they didn't want to go through any experience that was similar. Anything that involved leaving their home. Even if it was by choice, even if it was from an invitation from their own son to come have a better life, they did not want to leave their home again. And... It's heartbreaking because it just shows how horrible it is what the Israeli government and the settlers did to them. And, you know, nothing like that has ever happened to me, but I'll ask you, you know, my listener, I mean, would you be able to think totally rationally about something if someone came up to your house with a mob and guns and all kinds of things that you don't have or you don't have as much of and told you, this is my house now. Your yard, it's mine now. Your animals, your everything, everything you have except the clothes on your back is all mine now. And you're never going to get it back. And if you don't go and let us take all of this, then we'll kill you. I mean, just, uh, just imagine what that would do to you. And how it would, it would be so traumatic to think about anything similar to, uh, to leaving home. And people do that with trauma. You know, I've noticed that just 
from looking at my own experiences and other people's experiences is when something traumatizes you that much, you want to avoid anything even remotely similar to that trauma. You know, I think... um, I mean, I developed a fear of, uh, of blood because of some of what I saw when I was living in Lebanon, which is another story for another time. Maybe that'll be part of this whole Middle East uh, block of episodes that I'm doing right now. Um, you know, given what's going on in the news and how I think people might be willing to pay more attention to this right now, maybe even change some of their views. You know? So, I mean, I don't think anyone could listen to that and not be moved um, and not immediately understand that, you know, of course there are situations where innocent Israeli people have died, been been brutalized, killed. Um, you know, I mean, Miko Peled... Uh, wonderful pro-Palestine activist, you know, he lost his niece in a suicide bombing from a, a Palestinian. He's, he's Israeli, lost his niece. Um, but, you know, when you understand it that way, and you understand that there are two groups of people, and one had less power, and one lost so much while the other gained so much and was supported so much along the way and while the other was not supported and was often villainized uh, just for resisting that you know it's only natural that your sympathy is going to be more with one group of people than the other right um and not to say that this is the same type of conflict or, uh, you know, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but to give an analogy for something you might be more familiar with, you know, think of what's happening now with Russia and Ukraine, right? Like, generally, the world's sympathy is much more with Ukraine because they're not the one doing the invasion, Right? Now, granted, you know, it's taken a toll on Russia as well. Um, and there are reasons why the invasion happened. Uh, but, you know, so it, it's, it's very different, obviously, because the reasons behind the invasion are, are very different between Israel and Russia. Um, you know, that's, I, I, maybe I'll just stop with that analogy there, but... You know, just to give you a sense of why that's where my solidarity is. Because I I just don't think you could have an experience like that. And, you know, and then I very quickly, I was only 11 years old, and I very quickly understood, like, all right, well, there aren't really any Israeli refugee camps, Um, you know. And I guess to hit on another point, it, it also sort of, uh, it felt like a bit of a, a blemish on my pride as a Lebanese person, too. Well, not, I don't know, not that I've, 
I don't know if I've really ever had any like ethnic pride. Like I actually tend to be kind of cautious of that, but like it it's not a good look for the Lebanese that there are these refugee camps and that Palestinians aren't more integrated into Lebanon. Um, and I noticed when I was there that there were tensions between those groups because, you know, basically the Palestinians are sort of, they're the immigrants to Lebanon, you know, uh, they were kind of viewed as like the immigrant people who were coming and sometimes taking jobs and doing other kinds of things like that. So I definitely observed kind of a snootiness and a condescension with how the Lebanese would think about Palestinians sometimes. Um, And it's, you know, I mean, it's sad to think about because if Palestine is totally wiped out, which seems possible in the near future with this conflict going on, Again, recording this on October 12, 2023. Um, I don't know. I mean, Lebanon might be one of the only places where they could even try to settle down and have some semblance of, of feeling like they have their own land again. Although <laughs> although Israel has attacked Lebanon too. So I don't know. I, I mean, if they, uh, if they do want to try to put down roots in Lebanon, I don't think they should do it in the south of Lebanon. Um, well, you know what? No, now that I think about it, I guess they're not safe anywhere in Lebanon. I mean, Israel has invaded all parts of Lebanon. They've, Israel has bombed Beirut, you know, the central city, the city I lived in. So, I mean, you know, Arab, uh, the different Arab peoples have their own problems and conflicts and everything, but it's one of the only things that ever unites them is this shared hatred of Israel, because Israel has, you know, bombed, invaded most of the places around there. Um, I mean, it basically all comes down to Israel being sort of this Western proxy war outpost uh, against the non-white people of the Middle East, Um which is something maybe I should have mentioned in my last episode about the Jewish state. But that's really, that's kind of my explanation or or how I perceive the whole project of Israel is basically the UK, US, other, you know, primarily white nation states that have poured taxpayer funding into Israel and helped it expand. Um, You know, I mean, it's not a coincidence, right? Like they had a decision to make They could have not backed any of the people there in the region, or they could have backed the Palestinians and helped fortify Palestine. Um, Or they could have sided with the white people, the Ashkenazis, the Israelis, which is what they did. I don't think that's a coincidence. And, uh, you know, it's... It's kind of similar to what we're doing with Ukraine, right? Like, you know, why fight these direct wars with Iran and with, you know, um, Egypt and Syria and Hamas and Hezbollah and Lebanon and all these different forces. Why fight direct wars with them that would endanger American lives more and escalate tension even more 
when we could just pour money into Israel and basically have them do the work for us with our taxpayer money. Um, so, you know, I think it's similar to what we're doing with Ukraine and Russia where, you know, okay, why fight this direct war with Russia that could more directly risk World War III when we can just pump taxpayer money into Ukraine and use the Ukrainians basically as uh, cannon fodder and human shields um, to weaken Russia, which the U.S. has stated is the goal of that conflict. So anyway, I'm going off on a bunch of tangents, but I try to always connect these things because I do think that you know, these patterns of imperialism and proxy wars and um, refugees and, you know, the people who are collateral damage. I mean, these are global patterns, right? They have to, these kinds of things happen all over the world. It's just that because I'm half Ashkenazi and half Lebanese, half Arab, I happen to know a bit more about this particular conflict. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that was the inciting event that made me have solidarity for the Palestinians. And it just generally made me have solidarity for the indigenous oppressed people. And that, that's just generally how I look at conflicts, right? Like, you know, I, of course, look at the Native Americans as more sympathetic than the white Settlers, And that doesn't mean that the Native Americans never did anything bad, right? Of course, you know, you had scalpings and things like that. And of course, right? It's not to like say that there's one side that is morally pure or something like that. It's just to say that no matter how many atrocities are exchanged between the two sides, in any conflict, you have to acknowledge well, this is going to sound very elementary school, but you have to acknowledge the the who started it, basically. It is actually that simple, right? The, you know, there is someone who started it and there is going to be someone who has much more power and is taking many more lives than the other person, right? I mean, you look at Israel and how many Palestinians they've killed versus how many... Israelis, Hamas, or whatever it is, has killed. And it's, I mean, it's not comparable at all. Like Israel has killed way, way, way more innocent Palestinians um, compared to how many innocent Israelis have died at Palestinian hands. And it's the same with the Native Americans. It's it's the same with any kind of conflict like that. Um you know, so again, it just goes back to my general political values I was starting to develop, but it was through the lens of that particular issue and conflict because I happened to go to that refugee camp, because I happen to have the ethnic background I do. So anyway, uh, I'm going to conclude this episode. If you want to support the podcast, so many ways you can do that. Spotify allows you to donate monthly for as low as a dollar. Patreon for as low as $5 a month, but you get a lot more out of Patreon. Patreon, you actually get benefits such as, uh, you know, kind of 
looking ahead at my third novel that's in progress, signed copies of my books, participating in meetings, being able to call me, all kinds of stuff like that. Spotify, it's more just donating for the sake of donating, but that's why you can do it for less money, only a dollar. And of course, um, I also have a PayPal, which you know you should be able to see either on Spotify or if you sign up for my email list or go to my social media, all that good stuff. Um, and of course, you can buy my books. Uh, and um, stay tuned for my third novel, which is going to not, it's not set in Israel, Palestine, but it, it focuses on that conflict a lot because the main character is half Israeli, half Palestinian. Um, so stay tuned for all of that. Adios.